This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ruth Wishart. It's my very great pleasure to be chairing this afternoon's session of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Now, in the months and the years leading up to the killing of Osama bin Laden, the West had built up a compelling public persona for him. He served as our most potent bogeyman, the leader, it was said, of a particularly virulent strand of Islamic fundamentalism and the purveyor of mass terror. This analysis changed very little after his death, nor did the accepted wisdom about Al-Qaeda, its aims and its adherents. One constantly dissenting voice has been that of our guest this afternoon, whose biography of bin Laden paints a very different portrait of a pious ascetic, a charismatic leader as personally kind and generous as he was ruthless in pursuit of his jihadist cause. His portrayal speaks not so much of a caricatured villain as a contemporary Saladin defending the Muslim world against the infidel. As the first head of CIA's bin Laden unit in the latter half of the 1990s, he has had access to a wealth of material revealing the hinterland which shaped bin Laden's worldview. Unlike many of the political classes, he well understands the need to study the past in order to predict the future. Please welcome Michael Scheuer. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thank you very much for coming. Um, I had to, uh, I had a, st a structured talk to give, uh, but I think I found that it would take too much of our afternoon or our period of time here together. So I thought I would um, ad lib a bit and talk about the core of what I wanted to say, which is with the death of Osama bin Laden, um, the United States and its allies, the West generally, I suppose, scored a tremendous tactical victory one that perhaps with a great deal of luck will turn into a strategic victory. But I think that's very doubtful. But because we live in an age not of history or leadership, but of celebrity, we, I believe, at least in the media, uh, much of the media, have taken the death of Osama bin Laden as sort of a um, endpoint that we can forget about this problem and uh, not worry too much about what the future brings. We can attend to... Uh, as you were saying. Well, yeah, as I, <laughs> as I was saying. Uh, we live in an era, I'm afraid, of celebrity. Uh, we now think that the problem in Libya will be solved if we can just hunt down uh, Muammar Gaddafi and uh, send him to sleep with Osama with the fishes. And I think that's, that's probably an overestimation. And certainly the idea that having gotten rid of Osama bin Laden will solve our problem uh, is... Um, incorrect. Our problem at the end of the day is not really Osama bin Laden or the people he inspired and who, he fo who followed him and, and who he will inspire for the foreseeable future. The problem lies primarily in ourselves, uh, particularly in the political classes in the West, in the United States where I can speak most with most um, experience if not authority. We have for 20 years had presidents who regularly stand up and lie to the American people that we are at war with a certain amount of the Muslim world because we have liberty, because we have freedom, because my daughters go to university, because one or more of us may have a beer after work or sometimes partway through the day. At the end of the day, nothing could be further from the truth. 
If this was a war being waged against us because of the way we live or think or behave at home, it wouldn't rise to the level of a lethal nuisance. Uh, we're at war because of what our governments do in the Muslim world and what they have done on a consistent basis since uh, the end of the Second Great War. And let me say very quickly that those policies which inspire, inspired bin Laden to fight us and other people may well be policies that we have to keep, continue to follow. It doesn't necessarily follow that uh, policies that inspire an enemy to fight you are necessarily the wrong policies. But it is a, a, a monstrous, um, uh, a monstrous kind of leadership that continues to tell the Western electorates that our support for Israel, for example, has nothing to do with the problems we face in the Muslim world, or that our, our occupation and, and our invasion and occupation of Iraq and Afghanistan have really not much to do with what our problems are in the Muslim world, or our dependence on oil in the Muslim world is not a problem. This is a very substantive war. And it is a war that we will be fighting over the next decade or more in our own streets. One of the great successes of Al-Qaeda in the half dozen years before the, the, the death of Osama bin Laden was to recruit a core of uh, especially American US citizen Muslims who were born in the United States, who know us intimately, uh, domestically, in our, in our domestic affairs and who will push for what bin Laden didn't push for, which is Hamas-like attacks within the United States. With him gone, that's out of the way. Uh, a gentleman like uh, an American named Adam Gadan, who is now known as uh, Azam Al-Amriki, who is very senior in Al-Qaeda's leadership. Another gentleman named Samir Khan, who came out of North Carolina and runs Al-Qaeda's English language um, uh, media operations. And finally, a gentleman named Anwar al-Walki, who uh, came out of New Mexico and now is in Yemen. And by all things that I've been told, is the leading, most popular preacher on the internet, especially in the English-speaking world. We are faced uh, with a problem largely of our own making. Um, at the end of the day, there is every reason to believe that uh, if we're adult enough to control our own destinies, we can indeed beat this problem or at least reduce it to a level that's uh, extremely manageable. But until we, we are willing to stand up and say actions have consequences, we are going to lose and, and lose everywhere. I think we tend to forget that from the very beginning, Osama bin Laden said, listen, I'm just one Muslim. Al-Qaeda is a very small organization. We cannot possibly uh, defeat the United States uh, by ourselves. Our number one responsibility, our number one job, if you will, is not to stage military attacks, is not to, to uh, uh, conduct guerrilla operations or fly airplanes into buildings. It is to inspire other Muslims to uh, attack the United States and its interests around the world, and those of its allies, increasingly. And on the day he died, 
he was an overwhelming success. If you, just on, the, on, an, on, ob, on an objective basis, on the 10th of September 2001, Al-Qaeda was overwhelmingly concentrated with its allies in Afghanistan. Uh, it had operational cells in many parts of the world, but no real other platform from to, do, to do the things they were doing in Afghanistan. Planning, uh, concentrating materials, concentrating manpower, uh, conducting strategy without any disruption. If you look to uh, the 10th of September coming up in 2011, they still operate in support of the Taliban insurgency in Afghanistan. They have a significant operating area in Pakistan. They have a strong base in Yemen where they now control three cities, something that I think few people ever thought would happen. They have a building alliance in um, Somalia. They're clearly making a comeback in Iraq. They're in the Levant and the bleed through from Iraq. The Israelis say they're in Gaza and somewhat in the West Bank and I have no reason to doubt that. And of course for the Islamist movement as a whole, the events since January from Egypt to Morocco are extraordinarily beneficial. And so notwithstanding bin Laden's death, um, I have to say that probably we are far worse off today as a community, as a Western community, than we were um, on the 11th of September 2011. How we get out of that problem again is a combination of more military power. We have managed to deploy two of the most spectacularly armed, technologically sophisticated, and well-trained uh, field armies in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we have managed to be beaten by gentlemen who use Korean War uh, vintage weaponry. Mr. Obama has surrendered in, uh, in Afghanistan and uh, with Mr. Cameron are, are already withdrawing troops. And um, in Iraq, of course, we accomplished nothing that we sent out to do there. <laughs> Uh, Iraq should have never been invaded, but it's always a dangerous thing to start a war and then intentionally, willfully lose it. Um, in terms of who's winning, I, I think it's a very useful thing to acknowledge that America has never announced a war aim in any particular sense. If you've noticed under Mr. Bush and Mr. Cheney especially, the war aims changed from day to day, week to week sometimes. But in terms of Al-Qaeda, the war aims they announced for handling the United States for the Islamist movement as a whole were three in number. First, to take advantage of international uh, economic conditions to help lead the Americans as close to bankruptcy as possible. Second, to spread out what they defined themselves as very limited U.S. military forces uh, and intelligence forces to the point where they lacked reserves and flexibility. And third, to create as much dissent as possible within the United States and to strip away our war-fighting allies uh, to the extent they could. Now, if I'm uh, Al-Qaeda, or really any Islamist, it would be hard for me, I think, to grasp the amount of progress they've made since 9-11. Since, uh, uh, At the cost of, uh, admittedly, 
uh, a number of their leaders, perhaps a large number. They have proven that the second superpower is much weaker, much more casualty adverse, much less willful than the superpower they defeated first in Afghanistan. And that lesson will not be lost on the Muslim world uh, when we run from Afghanistan in defeat. I think that the media forgets, or at least many people forget, that bin Laden's generation was galvanized by the defeat of the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, the forcing, forcing them uh, to withdraw their army. No one had previously beaten a superpower. And now the same Muslims, the same Afghans who defeated the Soviet superpower has not only defeated the second superpower of the United States, but also that superpower's NATO alliance. The impact of that among young Muslims, when con combined with the media operations that not only Al-Qaeda, but Lashkari Taiba and the other major Islamist groups come forward with, is going to have an, uh, an immense impact in the Muslim world. So this is, uh, th this is a time, I think, uh, for reflection on, on how we proceed. And I don't think there's any place else to start but the truth. Um, the real target here is not the men and the women who are in the field against us at the moment, but it's the next generation. What we need to do is to find a way to defeat militarily those people who are in the field. But we really need to uh, do something that will dissuade the next generation from coming under the banner of Al-Qaeda or any other Islamist group. And unfortunately, uh, from my perspective, that can only be done uh, for the United States by changing policies. We need, most of all, before anything can change for America in the Muslim world or the Arab world, is an energy policy that develops more of our own fuels at home, alternative energies, nuclear power. Uh, it, we must be able to get out of that situation where we are dependent on a police state like the Saudis to supply us with energy and buy our debt. For America, it is essential at some point to break our slave-master relationship with the Israelis. Um, there is no particular uh, substance to that relationship. There's nothing America needs from the Israelis. Their manpower is minimal. minimal. They have no um, resources to speak of. and. Their lobby in the United States is a corrupting influence that has really um, undermined the legitimacy of our own ability to create a foreign policy in the best interest of the United States. Likewise, the Saudi lobby in the United States is as pernicious as the Israeli lobby, but it does uh, things more quietly and more subtly. But it has suborned in its own way probably fewer members of the U.S. Congress, but many more members of the U.S. industrial community, particularly the oil and gas companies and uh, the arms makers. I think there's a certain amount of, of Saudi activity in that regard in Britain and in France also. But America is uh, far from being able to uh, dictate its own foreign policy or indeed to, to declare ourselves independent as an independent nation. We're dependent on the, the, the Saudis next to the Chinese to buy our debt, to help us in the international oil market. In short, to do all those things that bin Laden found 
were, were sufficient to motivate Muslims to fight us. Um, and I think I'll, I'll leave it there uh, and, and answer your questions and Ruth's questions. And just to say that perhaps on this issue more than any, any issue that I've encountered in my life, it's very important for people to think their own thoughts and make their own decisions. If you listen to our political leadership in the United States and uh, unfortunately I believe in France and Britain and other places, uh, they're leading us down a road to perdition. Uh, they are um, increasingly looking toward military force as um, the instrument of first resort instead of the last resort. And in an odd way, uh, these democratic politicians, small d democratic politicians, are behaving more and more like Marxists-Leninists in the sense that they believe that democracy is inevitable. That somehow because someone stands up in Tahrir Square or Green Square or someone else, somewhere else in the Muslim world and says we want a democracy, that that person somehow speaks for history and for example 85 million Egyptians. Uh, it's very unlikely. What's happened in the, in, in the Middle East makes certainly um, Al-Qaeda uh, delighted. The argument we have heard from so many writers uh, that the Arab, so-called Arab Spring has made Al-Qaeda irrelevant, uh, take a look at their, uh, what they defined as their overall war aims in 1996. First, to drive the United States as far out of the Middle East as possible. Whatever happens in terms of new governments in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Libya, we will have far less influence there as a nation than we ever had before. The second goal was to destroy the Arab, the Arab tyrannies to the greatest extent possible. I think they never expected it to happen as quickly as, they could, as it's happened, but they of course never expected the Americans and the British to stab former allies in the back as quickly and as frequently as, as we've had. And so, uh, the idea that, that they are irrelevant is, uh, is, is not a good idea. And it's a, it, to me, at least, it's a, for my grandchildren, my sixth is on the way. This is a very worrisome time. Uh, that we're engaged in a war. And from the United States, we have an administration who is going to promote and breed, probably breed, bring to fruition what Professor Huntington called the clash of civilizations. Between Mr. Obama and Mrs. Clinton, if you read Mr. Obama's speech from the 19th of May, they intend to install Western values, women's rights, labor unions, and to reconcile Shias and Sunnis in their spare time, <laughs> all the way from Mauritania to Pakistan. It will be the irony of ironies when the right-wingers in the United States, the neocons and the pro-Israeli group find out that the war of civilizations they said was being brought to us by Osama bin Laden turns out to be the product not of an Arab or a Muslim, but of the Ivy League. So let me leave it there and I'd be honored to answer your questions.
Thank you, Michael. We were, we were chatting just before we came into uh, the tent here. We were chatting about uh, the upcoming presidential election and uh, who might stand and who might not stand. And, uh, and Michael said, uh, the road to hell is paved with Harvard graduates, which I thought was <laughs> too good not to plagiarise. <laughs> so I have. Um, can we, I just want to pick up two or three points and then, and then uh, hand you over to the audience, Michael. But let's just uh, start in a way where you finished with the Arab Spring, because, I mean, it is the case that, that very few of the commentators on the ground seem to see any evidence of al-Qaeda involvement, at least in terms of lighting the blue touch paper. I think it's, it's probably less important uh, what we saw than what we didn't see. Uh, now, if, if you imagine 250,000 people in Tahrir Square holding up signs that say, um, Islam is the way, come home, brother Ayman, Osama, you're the boy, uh, Mubarak would have shot them down and Mr. Cameron and Mr. Obama would have sent him more bullets. I, it always occurred, it, when I listened to CNN or Fox or BBC covering that, um, covering that event, no one ever seemed to, want to ask how 250,000 people were fed cared for, um, how uh, electricity was provided. And of course, there was only two institutions that could have done that in Egypt, either the army, which I doubt did it, or the Muslim Brotherhood. Now there's a far, as we were talking before, there's a big difference between the Muslim Brotherhood and Al-Qaeda. But neither of them will deliver a government that we will uh, like. And so, uh, wouldn't you consider, though, that it's a kind of, you know, bog-standard cultural imperialism for us to suppose that whatever government emerges in all of these places ought to be a mirror image of our own? Oh, I think it's, it's madness, but that's the, that's the common operating assumption in America, and certainly from when I listen to Mr. Cameron and, and Mr. Sarkozy since the Libyan adventure, that's their, um, that's their uh, operating assumption, that everyone eventually will be like us. That's what I meant when I, meant when I said they were a little bit... Marxist-Leninist and their approach to things. But I, I, one thing I, th I think, at least, is that there must be a tremendous problem within, the, at least the English-speaking world's educational system, that people we elect to be prime minister or president seem not to have a clue of the, the wars, the violence, the suffering that we've endured since, or Britain has endured since, since Runnymede, to become what we are in terms of democracy. Had the American public, I think, been educated to any great extent, uh, when, when Mr. Bush, or accurately educated, when Mr. Bush said we were going to put uh, 400 years of American um, democracy building, or republicanism building, uh, on a CD-ROM, and give it to Maliki and uh, Karzai and say, here, boys, you've got six months or six years to duplicate what we've done, uh, Bush should have been laughed out of the White House. And yet he wasn't. Americans said, yeah, that sounds good. Why not do that? Um, when I particularly single out the Ivy League, uh, I, I think things um, that are talked about, whether it's democracy in Afghanistan or, or something else, really exists only in the eyes uh, or the minds of people who are very, very well educated. Uh, there won't be a democracy of our kind in North Africa. There won't be one in Iraq. There won't be in a, one in Afghanistan. Not because Muslims are incapable of, of democracy, 
but they're not yet at a stage where they're willing to separate church and state. And until you can separate the two, you're not going to have something that resembles our democracy. I guess what I was saying, though, is it necessarily our model of democracy that there's, to which anybody might necessarily aspire anyway, given the cultural hinterland that we're talking about? I think it's impossible to believe that, first, uh, most Muslim populations are going to want a democracy of our kind. Second, that they're going to want the paganness that's now rife in much of our, uh, much of our popular culture. Third, why do we care? People ultimately have to decide how to govern themselves by themselves. But if you listen to Mrs. Clinton or John McCain, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bipartisan pathology in the United States. Uh, the argument is they're going to be like us, so we have to support them. And when whatever administration encounters the Islamist government of Egypt, it's going to be interesting to see what they do about it. Are they going to try to overthrow it and go back to what? Well, let me just pick up. I mean, one of the, the countries you didn't really mention, except tangentially in that uh, talk, was Pakistan. And there has been that precise um, form of engagement with Pakistan these many years through several different Pakistani governments. But yet we have this persistent uh, axis with, with Afghanistan and with the problems in Afghanistan. So how do you see the conundrum of Pakistan being resolved? I think uh, the less we push democracy anywhere in the world, the safer the world will be. Uh, I teach at Georgetown University, and they have a school there that teaches um, uh, democracy building as a peace. It's not the name of it, but it's democracy building as a means to ensure peace. And they're right next to where our department is. I teach in security studies. And I, every once in a while, I see him, and we shoot the bull, and I say, you know, if you guys really believe what you say, drive down the road about 90 miles to a place called Antietam where two democracies tore their guts out uh, and 600,000 people eventually died. Um, it, it's, I, I, Ruth, I don't know at the end of the day how we've come to the point where we are dictating to all other people around the world to live like us, um, but that's where we are. One last question before we put the lights up, Michael. You, you make a very persuasive case in the book for two things. One is that there's a new breed of uh, adherents of Al-Qaeda, and they're, they're technologically very literate, uh, they're very well educated, and they're extremely good at, at, at mass communication in terms of, of um, portray, their portrayal of the world as it is and as they'd like it to be. The second thing you say even more persuasively is that Osama bin Laden was a peculiarly charismatic leader who understood without necessarily original thought, but who understood which buttons to press, which, which uh, worked on a, a kind of global basis. Now, now that he's out of the equation, can these other elements of Al-Qaeda coalesce, cohere, or are they just a kind of disparate group of, of, of uh, satellites? Let me take the first one first, Ruth. Um, the, the one mistake we have made consistently in the West, and it's not a mistake, it's part of our culture. We, we assume, or at least we believe, that the two words westernization and modernization are synonyms. And for much of the Muslim world, especially for the more religious part of the Muslim world, they're not. Uh, I think by now we should be convinced that the tools of modernity are extraordinarily popular and wanted in the Muslim world, whether it's automobiles, radios, televisions, uh, internet, weaponry, sophisticated camo gear, they not only love it, 
but they have used our own technology to beat us. They've, they keep going one step further than we've gone in terms of improvisation. So um, they're extremely modern. They're not very Western. They're not fighting modernity. What they're fighting is Westernization. They're fighting women's rights in our sense of women's rights. They're fighting uh, a breakdown in the connection between church and state, the, the advance of secularity. And until we come to realize that, that you can be pro-modern and anti-Western, uh, we're not going to really have a real grip on our enemy. And unfortunately, um, bin Laden uh, uh, is not a person who appealed to um, the uneducated, the kind of um, rabble that our Congress, for example, believes. Our Congress still believes, after all these years, that somehow, if there's a new deal uh, for the Arab world, if we educate them more and give them better teeth and uh, build schools and apartments for them, that somehow we will have uh, a, a population in the Muslim world that's less prone to this kind of violence. Well, I think we've proven at Guantanamo what we did was create a Mujahideen battalion with the best teeth in the Muslim world, but just as determined to, to kill us. Um, bin Laden, unfortunately, and many of his, his lieutenants and many of the Islamic leaders and the other groups uh, that are functioning around the world appeal to the best and brightest in the Muslim, in the Muslim world. This is not a grassroots uh, um, pickup team. These people are engineers, they're doctors, they're dentists, they're teachers, they're uh, computer scientists. They're the best and the brightest. And until we come to grips with that, we are um, going to be on the short end of the stick. Osama's son, Omar, wrote a book with his mom, which is really a very revealing book. Uh, and at the end of the book, he says, the Americans will be sorry that they killed, didn't kill my father when they had the chance to early on. Because the people he has recruited are smarter, better educated, more tech technologically savvy, more intolerant religiously, and much more brutal. And I think that's what we're facing at the moment. In terms, sorry. Well, I was just gonna say, in terms of can someone take bin Laden's place, I think it's a very difficult set of credentials to replace. Um, Speaking of Robin Hood in England is probably silly, but in many ways he was a Robin Hood figure, a man who, who abandoned, abandoned the lifestyle of a family worth anywhere from 20 to $40 billion, a man who was wounded four times in battle, someone who spoke very eloquent uh, Arabic, and someone who put his money where his mouth was, spent his entire fortune. He was... Uh, in the Muslim world, very much a, a, a Robin Hood figure. Is there someone to take his place? I think the answer is probably not, but I think a pertinent question is, does there need to be? It may well be that since the, 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 the primary goal of Al-Qaeda since its foundation was to incite other people, there may not be a need for another bin Laden. There may not even be a need for Al-Qaeda anymore. Because much of the Muslim world, as we watch it, uh, whether it's in India, whether it's on the streets of New York and London, whether it's in uh, uh, Algeria, uh, much of the Muslim world is at least up in arms. And uh, 
the future of al-Qaeda, I don't think really is absolutely, uh, that movement is not absolutely dependent on the future of al-Qaeda. Are you worried about the anniversary at all? You know, I never, uh, I spent 10, 10 years, 12 years chasing Osama bin Laden, and I worked every 4th of July, Christmas, Thanksgiving, um, because American politicians were wanted to cover their butts. We never had any indication that they were going to attack on a particular anniversary. What I worry about this one for is simply the revenge motive, but also their goal is so very close in terms of bleeding America to bankruptcy. I'm not sure that uh, another attack of 9-11 or worse wouldn't really put us in a position where our economy crashed much greater than 9-11. So I think if I was betting, I would bet that there wasn't going to be an attack, but in the back of my mind, I'd, I have to say that I'm a little worried this time around. Okay, let's put the lights up and get some questions from the audience. There is, as we said earlier on, a, mic, uh, a microphone. If you just wait till it comes, sir, gentlemen in the front there, and then somebody right up at the back. Thank you very much for a very uh, eloquent description of uh, all the mistakes we've made so far. Um, what does a post-Israel uh, Middle East look like, particularly since both Israel and Pakistan are armed with nuclear weapons? <laughs> it's a good, that's a good question, sir. Um, and we're soon going to have Iran with nuclear weapons. Uh, the idea that somehow we're going to stop the Iranians from acquiring a nuclear weapon is, is really quite laughable. Had we intended to do that, we would have stopped France and Germany from selling them the technology back in the 90s to, to complete that process. Um, you know, maybe nuclear weapons aren't such a bad idea. I don't think the Iranians for a second would shoot at the Israelis um, uh, because they would be incinerated by us by the Israelis and perhaps by, the, I don't know what British targeters are doing these days, uh, but they need a target. Um, we have had a pretty fair balance of power between Pakistan and, and uh, India since they were both nuclear powers and, and certainly, um, at least in my experience, having worked Pakistan and South Asia for most of my career, the paranoia and hatred between many Indians and Pakistanis is not any different than that between Palestinians and, and or Iranians and Israelis. Um, I think the key is you want to get to the position, the United States wants to get in the position of saying, uh, of someone asking, what are you going to do, you know, what's going on, or saying what goes on in the Middle East, you want to be able to say, who cares? Um, and, and once you uh, dissociate yourself from the Israelis, once after 40 years of wasted time you do something about energy, you can basically say, let, let the Arabs rule themselves if they can do it, or let them kill each other if that's what they want to do. Um, but there's no good end that's going to come for America from anything that keeps us involved to the extent we're involved there now or increases our involvement. I just heard on the BBC before coming over here, Britain is, Britain is shipping things to Libya because people are going to starve if we don't. Well, the Americans are going to be right there to the extent that we, our presence grows in, the, in North Africa, visible on the ground, whether it's special forces or humanitarian workers, um, the Islamists benefit. And it looks like an occupation. And so I guess what I would say is that if, if we can take care of energy, that's the big thing for the United States. Uh, let, let the Middle East sort out its own destiny. 
we've certainly failed utterly to steer it in any one direction in the past uh, half century. Gentleman at the back. Um, <clears throat> thank you for a 100% realistic appraisal. Wonderful to hear an American make such an appraisal. Um, it's not wonderful for most Americans to hear it. <laughs> and, and at least one Brit. <laughs> well, but my question is, um, uh, it seems to me President Obama had uh, perhaps the right ideas when he came into power and then found Congress obstructed everything he wanted to do. Um, and meanwhile, the Chinese are taking every advantage. But my question is, um, uh, in the Islamic world, do you think there's a possibility that the new um, Arab awakening will uh, bring forward a kind of moderate Islamic form of government as in Turkey? Would that be a desirable and uh, possible outcome? I think it's a very desirable outcome. I think a big part of whether or not it can happen is, is the attitude of London, Washington, and Paris. We have proven uh, reluctant to have any form of Islamic government surface. For example, um, in, in, a, in a small example, in Somalia, the Islamic Courts Union took power and for the first time was bringing stability to that country. Um, it was going to be an Islamic government, but not one that was bent on exporting its, its uh, ideology. And certainly the Bush administration couldn't stand the thought and authorized, of all people, Christian Ethiopians to invade a Muslim country. Um, so the big question is, what will uh, the, the states, the Western community tolerate? Can they live with an uh, Islamic government? I wrote in the book that bin Laden spent a lot of time, uh, really, in, in, in saying, uh, when the fighting is over, this is not our uh, fight anymore. It's going to have to go to the people who are smart enough to elect a government uh, and to put a government into place. Um, if you read what he said, if you read what Zawahiri says, um, the government has to be established so it follows Islamic law but, and can be changed if it doesn't, uh, whether by force or by some other method. So the idea that somehow this great green caliphate monster is marching toward us is, is a nonsense. But again, um, because we are looking for uh, clones in Cairo, in uh, Tripoli, in, in Sana, um, we may not be happy with something that is much more democratic than what we see today, much more democratic than Mubarak, for example, but heavily, heavily Islamic. Um, again, so much of this problem is in our own hands. Uh, and and uh, the, fear, the fear factor is extraordinary. When I was a boy, many decades ago, one thing about America is we didn't get scared by very many things. You know, you kind of picked up and moved on and solved your problems. Now America is a country that is afraid of everything or things that are too hard to do. We can't, we've wasted 40 years on energy because it's too hard to do anything about it. We have an open border that's causing us a bleeding economy and, and, and great violence in the Southwest, but we can't close it because it's too hard to do. Our foreign policies were set in the Middle East during the Cold War. Well, the Soviet Union has been gone for 20 years. The policies are the same, but it's too hard to change them. So, or, or, or today, you know, there's, there's a hurricane coming. Let's close down New York City. Well, okay, but life goes on. 
and as long as we're afraid of everything, any government that calls itself Islamic, even if it's popularly supported, is probably going to earn the enmity of the United States, especially as long as our Congress is suborned by the Israelis, or more accurately, by Jewish American citizens and their organizations. Gentlemen there. Um, sorry, I just first of all wanted to say uh, congratulations to Ruth for handling the rather angry man so beautifully. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I was stuck in my seat with fear, uh, but you handled them beautifully, Ruth. I'm so. from Glasgow. <laughs> so is my mum, and that's exactly how she dealt with me. <laughs> uh, Michael, I, I wonder um, if you could perhaps say something about the role that religion and faith plays in this. Yeah. Certainly in America you have um, several, certainly to us on the outside, unusual people like Michelle Bachman who believes her husband commanded her to become a tax lawyer <laughs> God told him uh, that's what she needed to be. Um, I would hope that God would tell my wife to be something more interesting than a tax lawyer. But also then the role of the dominionists in America, the role of the evangelical Christian right, yeah. people who are desperate to see the end times. Yeah. Uh, and so are fundamentally at odds with some of the things that you think we need to do in order to quash the religious outside of America. Yeah, that's absolutely the case, sir, and I really should have said something about this. This is fundamentally a religious war. And when you hear your prime minister, Mr. Blair or Mr. Cameron, if you hear President Bush or, or um, uh, President Obama say that this war has nothing to do with religion and somehow one six-foot-four Saudi with a long beard hijacked the religion of 1.4 billion people, um, you're at a loss to know really how to respond to that. But you're exactly correct. Uh, the Israeli lobby is, is an extremely influential lobby, but it now has 26 million Pentecostal evangelical Christians on its side. Um, Governor Perry, the new Republican uh, candidate uh, for president, is, is very much one of them. And there is a, a, there is, they, they have an extraordinarily negative impact on U.S. foreign policy, but that's a lot of votes. And I don't know how they're going to break that, sir. But increasingly, what Americans don't seem to realize is that because in the Middle East or in the Arab world, the Islamic world generally, um, preachers, Islamic scholars, are very important people. When they speak, they speak for a lot of people. They speak uh, the truth. And while you and I perhaps would think that, that Franklin Graham was a nutcake uh, because he wanted to identify the prophet as a pedophile or, or, or something else, much of the Muslim world hears the Pentecostals and the evangelical preachers as speaking for America. And so not only is it a problem within our own polity, but in the perception of American, America overseas, we become extraordinarily anti-Islamic based on what Muslims learn about what Franklin Graham or Hagee or the other ones speak about. Um, the problem is, what do you do about that in terms of the First Amendment or in terms of religious freedom? There's nothing you can really do except hope at some point you stop electing politicians and perhaps find one statesman. Um, that does not seem to be on the horizon. But your, your point is exactly, because it's gotten worse. Um, in, in, in 1996, when bin Laden declared war on us, the power of the evangelicals was, was not as great as it is today. And certainly the alliance with the, with the Israelis and, and the US Jewish community was not 
as strong as it was. But those are, that's a huge obstacle to any change in policy regarding Israel. You also flagged up another tension point in, in the book, Michael, which was in, in an African context, uh, radical Catholicism at odds with Islamic fundamentalism. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right, Ruth. The, the, the one place, I guess there's two places that the Catholic Church is not just a, um, kind of a feel-good kind of uh, organization anymore. That's in, in Cardinal Ratzinger's suite and in Africa. And uh, Catholicism in, in Africa is very much more a militant, um, the church militant, if you will, as is the growing Islamic uh, faith in much of Africa. And I think we're, we're going to see problems over there. Nigeria is a good example of that. Um, not just Catholicism, but especially Protestantism in, in Nigeria. And unfortunately for America, uh, Nigeria seems a long way away and irrelevant, but we get 20, we'll get 25% of our crude from Nigeria in uh, 2015. And so uh, it, that can't be um, replaced by anything in the world system at the moment. So the growth of religious animosities in Africa is going to be a, a problem for the United States. And uh, Algeria and Nigeria are very important to Europe and the United States for energy reasons, both oil and liquid natural gas. Thank you. More questions? Gentleman there who's right beside you and then one at the back. Oh, have we got any women in the audience? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. At, a, at ground level, I mean, if we look at what we've done and assume it's wrong and do the opposite, that we all need to meet more Muslims in the global course of events. So the obvious thing would be to let Turkey into the EU ASAP start working with Muslims. And yet that's going farther and farther away and they're going to get fed up eventually. I mean, why do we have to wait until all the beaches are clean before they're allowed in? Shouldn't we let them Turkey in immediately? You know, I'm not one uh, that believes that this is a problem addressable by outreach. When, I'm, when I argue that we need to understand what bin Laden or any one of our other enemies uh, says and why he says it and what the resonance of what he says is in the Muslim world, my concern is not with appeasing them or making friends with them. My goal, based on my career, was simply make it uh, easier to find a way to kill them. Uh, in, the, in the broader, in the broader uh, world, it may well be that the dereliction of Western governments in understanding how, how nations are built and how much any single nation can absorb in terms of immigrants that are foreign to its natural culture and character is an extremely big problem. Turkey, um, I, my own view is that Turkey would be a disaster in the, in the European Union by injecting another, what, 60 million Muslims with a history that's very different than Europe. You know, when, when the, before he became the Pope, Cardinal Ratzinger wrote a very, very, I think, good letter to, to Euro Catholic, European Catholics saying, as much as you like the EU, history goes on and history is what it is. Uh, the EU may not want to teach history, but Christianity is at the core of what Europe is, uh, whether it's art or music or architecture or whatever. And uh, if you have a problem, sir, with, and I think with respect, Europe does and Britain does, with, your, with, a, with the population of Muslims you have already, 60 million more probably is not the answer. 
gentleman at the back. Yeah, hello. Just want to ask, was there ever the intention to catch Osama bin Laden alive? And if it happened under your watch, what would you have said to him if you ever met him? <laughs> the, unfortunately, sir, there was always the intention until apparently Mr. Obama's decision to go after this operation to capture him alive. Um, I was extraordinarily fortunate, sir, when I was running operations against Osama bin Laden. He was very much on a learning curve uh, in terms of personal security. He lived southeast, a little bit southeast of Kandahar City on a farm in a compound. And uh, while he wasn't quite um, a blue-collar guy like my dad, he did keep a schedule that was predictable. And had Mr. Clinton wanted him dead, um, one 50-cent round from a sniper's rifle could have done it any time in 98 or 96, or 98 or 99. Uh, we could have done it eight different times with U.S. air power, and we also had two opportunities to kidnap him, but killing was never on the cards. Um, had I met him, I think I would have liked to engage him. It, he, I, he caught my attention, frankly, sir. I was educated by Jesuits for 16 years, and I know there's no Jesuits in the Muslim world, but his education was much like mine, <laughs> so I would have enjoyed talking to him but I would have much rather had the chance to kill him. We found a woman. <laughs> <laughs> As an American living abroad, um, I like to always um, question British people as to how they were perceived, not only through the news, but the traveler, their education. And one of my friends here who's English um, predicts that the United States, within, say, 30 years' time, will become an isolationist country because it's such a rich country as far as natural resources and um, probably could stand alone in many ways. What do, since there's no political will in Washington DC today, obviously, unless we cleaned everybody out of there, what do you, I'm an independent by the way, I'm not Republican or Democrat, <laughs> never have been. Um, what do you see happening in the next 20 or 30 years for the next generation or, you know, our young people? What I hope will happen is not that they become isolationists. I don't think America has ever been isolationist. You know, isolationism is a slur more than it is a, a, a doctrine. Um, the, the scholarship, I think, has proven that our isolationist period from 1919 to 1941, uh, America was more involved with the world economically, scientifically, educationally than any other time in our history. So we've never been isolationist. What I think is going to happen, though, um, is what uh, Ron Paul represents, uh, non-intervention. Using war or US power only when US interests are concerned. And those are, are national interests. Unfortunately, today, for example, oil is a national interest. Um, certainly, freedom of the seas is uh, vital to American uh, economic well-being, as freedom of the air now is also. Um, outside of a very few number of uh, life and death issues, America can do a lot less intervening around the world. Um, the idea, for example, that women's rights are a national interest of the United States is insane. It's a national interest in the United States. But for a young Marine to die in Afghanistan so Mrs. Mohammed can vote is, is a tragedy of epic proportions. All I can tell you is that I 
have written a couple of books and traveled around the country quite a bit. And I find in the 25 to 40-year-old range, a great deal of, of sympathy for Mr. Paul's idea of non-intervention. Not disarmament, not isolationism. Indeed, Paul is a very much a free trader, a, a person who's a very economically minded, profit-driven. But to get involved in situations only when it's a life and death issue for us, I think that's going to happen. Can I, can I, can I just stop you there? Just because we're all, we, in fact, we are out of time, but we got disenfranchised because of a small person. Um, Your boyfriend. <laughs> Could you make it a one-sentence question, please, yeah, yeah, sir? I was going to ask you, uh, General Petraeus is now appointed as head of the CIA, a non-professional. How do you see it as an ex-professional? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, non-professional isn't a bad thing, sir. I, I, th I think what we've proven in the last six or seven directors of CIA is that you can't put somebody in there who has any ambitions for a future job. Um, <laughs> and, not, not, and I didn't mean that because it's a dead-end job, but <laughs> what I meant was you really need somebody who's willing to stand up and tell the president the truth and someone who's either wealthy enough or old enough that he's going to retire like Mr. Panetta. I didn't think Mr. Panetta would do very well there, but he did because he's 72 years old and he, all, he, he saw his job as telling uh, the president what he knew is to be the truth around the world. Mr. Tennant wanted to be senator from uh, New Jersey at some point. We had a whole bunch of people like that. The, my objection to Mr. Petraeus is that he lost two wars and got rewarded uh, by being named the director of central intelligence. You know, he slicked the American people with that thing called the surge. What he did was please uh, both McCain and Obama by getting Iraq off the map for the election period at the cost of how many dead young soldiers and Marines. But is there, is there not a resentment from the rest of the CIA? You know, sir, I've never sensed a resentment. The agency, for all of the, what's, what, what's talked about, is a very disciplined organization and, and willing to follow the lead. Sometimes you get very frustrated with the kind of leadership you get. Um, but um, we've had some very good civil, civil leaders. I think Mr. Mr. civilian leaders. Mr. Mr. Panetta was a, not a professional intelligence officer. Mr. Casey was a tremendous director, and he was OSS, of course. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, sir, but we really, we really are out of time now. If, but I'm not suggesting you don't carry on this dialogue, but you carry on, if you wouldn't mind, in the signing tent, which we're going to go to in just a minute, where uh, Michael will be signing copies of his book, chatting to anybody who wants to chat to him. And I'd be really grateful if you'd let us um, get out first before you go there, though I'll check, of course, outside in case there's anybody <laughs> um, lying in wait. Could you please join me in thanking Michael Shore? Thank you all. More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.